Finding Home is a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society. The Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings. I'm Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archives Society. Welcome to our podcast series, Finding Home. I talked many episodes ago about an Irish immigrant named John McCart. McCart helped to develop today's Detroit Shoreway neighborhood way back in the 1880s. By the 1930s, more people of Irish birth and descent were investing in real estate in ways large and small. The Irish had been land-starved in their native country and yearned to own property in the U.S. For the ordinary person, real estate was at most a small-scale side activity. In the 1920s through the 1940s, it was not uncommon for families to scrimp in order to be able to purchase a lot outside the city center. They hoped to build a house on that second lot someday. My grandparents and several great-aunts and uncles all had lots. But people who could only dream of building someday often couldn't keep up with the additional mortgage payments. My Gibbons' grandparents lived in Collinwood. My grandfather was a police sergeant and usually worked a second job as well. There were seven children. In 1938, my grandparents bought a lot off of Warrensville Center Road. The family would drive out to the lot and sit on it, because it was ours, one of my aunts said. But my grandfather had to sell it in 1948. The lot represented an unfulfilled dream. Other families were able to hold on to their extra property, and some were able to generate rental income that made a significant difference to their lives. For instance, I spoke many episodes back of the Murphy Oil Soap family. Their Irish immigrant ancestor, Michael Murphy, ran a grocery store in Tremont in the 1870s and 1880s. Michael Murphy also bought and developed a couple of other lots in Tremont. The rental income allowed him to help his son Jeremiah to survive a serious business setback. In addition, both father and son soon found that the land itself could be used as leverage and collateral in business deals. In 1892, Michael Murphy had enough capital to develop six houses on today's East 86th Street, north of Euclid. The family moved into one of the houses and sold or rented the others. Jeremiah Murphy learned the value of property from his father, Michael. Even as Jeremiah built a successful oil company, he continued all his life to buy property. On the east side, he owned lots on Superior and at Euclid and Neela Avenues in East Cleveland, as well as commercial property on Carnegie. In the 1920s, on the west side, he purchased commercial property on Lorraine in the then village of West Park. He also bought property slated for residential development off of Rocky River Drive. The residential allotment was near the anticipated site for the city's new airport. Murphy also ventured into the Florida real estate market. When some families moved out of their first house and into a new house, they held on to the first house as a rental property. Managing that property was sometimes seen as a side job for married women, providing a way for women to contribute to their family's financial well-being. One of my grandmothers grew up in the Angle in the 1890s and early 1900s. Her father had been injured on the iron ore docks, and the family always lived in rental property. Their landlords were frequently landladies. 
Those landladies were married women supplementing the meager wages of laboring or saloon-owning husbands. Annie Fian Gallagher was not one of my grandmother's landladies, but she is one of the many women who assumed that role. After Annie immigrated to Cleveland, she met and married a postman named Thomas Gallagher. Her husband's parents lived on Main Avenue in the Angle, and Thomas and Annie lived there with the parents when they first married. The extended family can be found on Maine in the 1900 census. By 1910, the parents were deceased and the younger couple had moved out to West 48th Street. By 1930, after Annie's husband died, she and her younger children had moved to French Avenue in Lakewood. With each move, they held on to their old property. Annie continued to rent out the houses on Main Avenue and West 48th Street for years. Her granddaughter, Nani Pritz, told me that she remembered going with her grandmother to collect the rent in person in the 1930s. Annie may have acquired and rented out additional property as well. According to Mrs. Pritz, her grandmother was schooled in the ways of saving money by her grandmother's cousin, John T. Fian. Fian managed the Cleveland Trust Bank on West 25th Street. One of Annie Fian Gallagher's favorite sayings was, and I quote, a penny saved is a penny earned, end quote. Thomas and Annie Gallagher had eight children. The children all attended college, each one helping out the next one. I spoke about the family during the last episode. Two sons became doctors, one son became a priest, and all five daughters became teachers. The extra income earned by managing real estate became a lifeline for women who were widowed or whose husbands lacked steady employment. Real estate was a mainstay for Julia Patton, wife of gangster Shimmy Patton. While her husband was taking chances with bootlegging and later gambling, Julia began buying and selling property. I haven't confirmed for certain yet, but she may have been involved in up to 92 property transactions from 1918 on. Most of her early transactions involved property on the near west side. Both Julia and her husband were born in the Angle and continued to live on the near west side for many years. As time went on, she had the same idea that Jeremiah Murphy had. She began buying property off of Puritus and Rocky River Drive near the new airport. Julia Patton sometimes had to rely on real estate when her husband needed to be bailed out. A gambler once tried to sue Shimmy Patton for money lost at the Harvard Club in 1934. The plane dealer reported that, and I quote, Mrs. Patton put up a $30,000 piece of property at 2801 Detroit Avenue Northwest as security for the bond, end quote. IAAS board president Tom Corgan told me that widowhood led to property ownership for one of his great-grandmothers, Sarah Burke Gibbons. Born in England to Irish-born parents, Sarah Burke married a Thomas Gallagher, a different Thomas Gallagher, not Annie Fian's postman. Sarah Burke and her Thomas Gallagher married in Cleveland in 1879. Her Thomas Gallagher died within a few years, and Sarah was left with a young daughter to raise. Sarah married again in 1885 to a Thomas Gibbons, not to be confused with my police grandfather of the same name. Gibbons was also born in England to Irish-born parents, and he was an iron worker. Sarah's Thomas Gibbons lived a good long while. The couple had been married nearly 30 years when he died in 1914. 
However, the early death of her first husband seems to have made Sarah Gibbons aware that nothing was guaranteed in life. She was determined to put money away for a rainy day and seems to have begun buying and selling property in about 1890. More research needs to be done, but she may have been associated with more than 40 real estate transactions before her death in 1941. She outlived her husband for another 27 years, so she turned out to need that extra income of her own. It also gave her the wherewithal to help launch her children into adulthood. One son was killed at a young age in the newspaper circulation wars of 1914, the same year his father died. I mentioned him in an earlier episode. But another son became a battalion chief in the fire department, and another was a longtime Cleveland City Councilman. Sarah's oldest daughter became one of Cleveland's first female probation officers. I mentioned her last episode. Another daughter married a fireman. These were Tom Corgan's grandparents, Peter and Coletta Gibbons Corgan. Perhaps inspired by Coletta's mother, Sarah, it was Coletta's name, not her husband's, on the Corgan family property transactions. Sarah Gibbons more than dabbled in real estate, by the way. She was supposed to have sold the land for Holy Cross Cemetery to the Cleveland Catholic Diocese at a deep discount. A sprawling 277 acres, Holy Cross was dedicated in October of 1950. Another widowed woman and real estate speculator, Celia McCafferty Carney, paved the way for her two sons to become major players in real estate and politics in Cleveland for many decades. Her sons were the brothers John and Jim Carney. Both Carney parents, both immigrants from County Mayo, arrived in Cleveland in the early 1900s. They married here in 1907. In 1910, the family lived on West 45th Street, and the father, also John Carney, worked on the iron ore docks. By 1920, the family had moved further west to St. Ignatius Parish. John Carney Sr. was listed in the 1920 census as a driver. He progressed from horse-drawn hauling to trucks to excavating, and his business was good. Migration from the city center, both westward and eastward, created a need for new houses and stores. John Carney threw his lot in with the West Side, forming the West Park Excavating Company. When the father died suddenly in 1929, his two sons were still teenagers. A daughter had died earlier at a young age. The widowed Celia Carney became entirely focused on ensuring that her sons flourished. As her 1966 obituary recalled, she was, quote, busy with her family and her son's education, end quote. She was also resourceful. The family's property transactions had already been in her name, and she seems to have been buying and selling property in an earnest way in the early 1920s. She engaged in more than 60 property transactions before her death in 1966. The older of the brothers, John Carney, attended John Marshall High School. Celia Carney lobbied with Father Tom Gallagher at Holy Name Parish to find a scholarship to Holy Name High School for her younger son, James. She made sure that James finished high school and encouraged both sons to attend law school while they maintained the family excavating business. The brothers and their mother were extremely close. By 1930, the three of them had moved further west off of Rocky River Drive. At ages 29 and 27, they were both still single and living at home with their mother, though they would both subsequently marry. When John and later James decided to go into politics, Celia Carney campaigned relentlessly. 
It was said that she rode the streetcars all day, passing out campaign flyers and asking anyone and everyone to vote for her sons. John Carney became deputy county treasurer in 1933. Both brothers served in the Ohio legislature, John from 1937 to 1946, and Jim from 1946 to 1952. Each served in turn as House Democratic leader. Both also served in World War II. After the war, while buying and reselling decommissioned excavating equipment, they began to understand how to make money. They also began to buy property. As a plain dealer reporter observed in 1966, and I quote, by shrewd dealing at sheriff sales in the days when real estate was on the block, the Carneys parlayed their cash, end quote. They set up a law firm together in 1945, specializing in real estate law. James lost a couple of elections in the 1950s for judge and for U.S. Senate, and began focusing more on business. John, however, served significant years as county auditor, on the election board, and on the Court of Common Pleas. Both brothers served as vice chairman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party at different times but James in particular wielded more power with behind-the-scenes campaign contributions. James ran unsuccessfully for mayor in 1971 and 1973. He served on the boards of the Cuyahoga County Port Authority and the Greater Cleveland Growth Association. Through the decades, the brothers bought or developed hotels and office buildings downtown, including the Ohio Savings Plaza, the Bond Court Hotel, and a new iteration of the old Hollanden House. The brothers anticipated the western path of I-90. They profited from judiciously timed property transactions on the west side. They developed residential allotments in Fairview Park and ventured into shopping plazas such as Cam's Corners in West Park. Between their own real estate ventures, their work as real estate lawyers, and their stints in government, they were often accused of conflicts of interest and using insider knowledge to gain a business advantage. In 1953, the Plain Dealer reported, and I quote, Auditor John J. Carney last night said he had no comment on a state examiner's report showing he had maintained an interest in a paving firm doing business with the county for several months after he took office in 1951, end quote. It was also noted that the paving firm made a payment to the Carney Brothers Law Firm. In 1966, Jim Carney insisted to a Plain Dealer reporter, and I quote, Being in both business and politics hasn't been good for us. If anything, it's been detrimental. No matter what we did, we got called on it. People said we had inside information. It isn't so. End quote. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Carneys were sometimes seen as part of a cabal of Irish-American politicians, and the Irish did pervade government at all levels. James V. Stanton was city council president, and Joseph McManaman became the city's safety director. County officials included Prosecutor John T. Corgan, Sheriff James McGettrick, and Commissioners William P. Day and Frank M. Gorman. Jim Carney overlapped in the Ohio State Legislature with boxer Johnny Kilbane and John V. Corgan. Kilbane went on to serve in Cleveland as Clerk of Courts. John V. Corgan joined the Cleveland Municipal Court, overlapped with John Carney on the Common Police Court, and finished his distinguished judicial career on the 8th District Court of Appeals. On the national level, Michael Fian was a longtime U.S. congressman. 
but the Carneys were first among equals. In 1966, the plain dealer declared, and I quote, James M. and John J. Carney are household names among Cleveland's power elite. The brothers have ridden to stature atop a bulldozer, powered by business acumen and political street sense, end quote. In the 1970s, the Cleveland Magazine called Jim Carney, and I quote, the most powerful man in the city, end quote. And land was a potent lever for them, whether to the personal power of their mother establishing her own livelihood or to the political power of kingpin brothers. The Irish had come a long way. Thanks for listening. I'm Margaret Lynch. Have a great day. You've been listening to Finding Home, a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland. Find out more about the Society or get in touch at irisharchives.org.